is a fascinating uh, story in the, uh, in the Old Testament about King Solomon when he dedicates the grand new Jewish temple. A L- little bit of backstory. King Solomon's father was King David, uh, who arguably was the greatest of all kings in the golden era of the Jewish monarchy, and one who had some pretty impressive promises that were attached to his reign as king. Not the least of which... Uh, was that David was going to build a house for the Lord's name. Turns out that phrase was a little bit of a double entendre. It was, it was intended to say two things at once. It wasn't just that David's house was going to build a temple, but that God was actually going to build a house for King David's line. In other words, what would happen was, is from David would come this one true and future king that would finally release all the captives and sort of established justice throughout the world. So you can imagine that when the temple is finally built, anticipation is pretty high as King Solomon pulls the whole thing together, isn't he? They've looked back, they've spent exorbitant amounts of money on this thing. Uh, Thousands of slave laborers have built it. Um, It even turns out that like, uh, it, it would it easily would have rivaled one of the ancient wonders of the modern uh, of the ancient world. Um, Twenty years in the construction project alone, and as they all stand around, you can imagine how that thing must have just glistened on the top of Zion's hill there in the center of Jerusalem on this day. Well, you can read about the whole story in First Kings chapter eight that the last piece of furniture that Solomon places in the temple is the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the Ark of the Covenant goes into the back. It has its own little special cube, cubicle room in the back of the temple. And once it's placed, all of a sudden, a giant, burning, fiery cloud descends down on the temple and makes it to where the priests can't even do their work. It's so amazing. And what's fascinating about that story is that cloud shows up. Nobody in the crowd mistakes and thinks that the building is on fire. They know that because they've got in their collective history experiences that teach them exactly what's happening. Because there have been times in their past where the cloud has shown up before. Not the least of which was when the very first representation of the temple showed up. This little uh, meticulous worship tent that Moses built called the tabernacle. Same thing happened when Moses puts the the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant back into the, uh, the house there. Suddenly this large cloud comes over and they, they're unable to do their work. They understood that when the cloud showed up, it was the presence of God manifest in their presence. And it always took place when the Ark of the Covenant was set in that place. But there was another story that was a much closer to their own personal history, actually only about 60 years prior to that sort of helped frame their understanding as well. And that was after, uh, after King Saul's reign. You see, Solomon's father, King David, did not have the most, um, shall we say, smooth transition of power between the former ruler and himself. But when he finally took root in that community as its king, he decided that he needed to do something important. And by the way, this is a very crucial moment for leaders. We oftentimes get fixated on exactly what a leader will do at the early parts of his rule, right? You know, even the reporters today will get fixated on the first 100 days of a politician's uh, sort of placement. 
Why? Because you expect that what that politician does at first is going in some way to set a tone for exactly what their rule is going to be like, what it's going to be about. So what David ends up doing is, is he says, my first major policy action is to bring up this Ark of the Covenant and set it in the tabernacle that I've, that I've established on Mount Zion, right there in the center of Jerusalem. Now here's a question. Why does he do that? Why does David choose this as this particular action? Well, I want to pair that question with another question to kind of help bring it a little bit closer to our circumstance this morning. Because we're about to, in the weeks to come, move into a new building. And I think it is important for every one of us to ask the question, what exactly are we hoping for in that building? My guess is we could survey the crowd and get lots of answers. For some of you, you will say, I cannot wait for the convenience of the new building. One day I'll get to go to church without having to cross a street. <laughs> for others of you, it's a little bit about protection. You're like, well, I don't know what's going on in that new building, but they better not change the way they do things. For others of you, still others, it's about an opportunity. Oh, at last, we'll finally have the means by which I can you know, engage in this program that I've wanted to do for years. But I want to set an idea before you this morning, and I think I can state it simply. The lesson that we're going to learn from David, especially this morning, is that the degree to which this congregation thrives in the years going forward is going to be directly tied to the longing that we have for that place to be the place where the presence of God shows up. Let me say that again. We will only thrive as a church together if our anticipation, or whatever they are in their myriad different things, are all subsumed under the anticipation, and that is that that place will be a place where we meet with God. That's got to subsume it all. And David is coming and giving us an example of exactly what it looks like to invite the presence of God into your midst. And I'm going to warn you, it's not always what you think. There are experiences that can come with that that can oftentimes rattle the people of God. But look, I'm not waiting on a cloud to descend upon 901 Sisk. But what I do think is that the dynamics of what David goes through in 1 Samuel chapter 6 are a wonderful map of what we can expect as we invite his presence in among us. So this morning I want to consider our need for the presence of God by asking these three questions about the meaning of the ark, the need for the ark, and the satisfaction of the ark. Those are my three points. Let's dive into that this morning. The first one is the meaning of the ark. I think it's very simple to say this. The ark had become for these people a public piece of furniture, a symbol as it were, that was to them a deeply embedded symbol of the presence of God in their midst. And of course, as an ethnic people, they had associations that were very mysterious and very wonderful about this thing. You would have been hard-pressed to find another physical symbol that would have come closer to letting the Jews know that they were the unique, special people of God than the Ark of the Covenant. It would have been hard to have found something like that. But look, you do realize that there are events that are either so traumatic on the one hand or exciting and amazing on the other that it marks your family from that time forward. You ever notice this? 
I, for one, have, have watched with great interest at the conversation that we are having nationwide as African-American leaders in our community come forward and will say that the trauma of slavery, though it is 160-some-odd years old in the lives of those people, still marks the hearts and imaginations of our African-American brothers and sisters. So much so that the symbols surrounding that institution still have the ability to traumatize and to haunt. And so far from being a place where we can rally together in unity, they re-traumatize in the minds of many of our own. And I, for one, have found a reason why would we not want for us to be able to be unified around public symbols? Because that's the power of public symbols, are they not? And not only are they powerful in a positive sense, but they can be very powerful in a negative sense. I was reminded of this this week when we were flipping through the stations and came across a favorite old movie, uh, Forrest Gump. It is an old movie. That's 25 years old, that movie. Doesn't that break you up right there? Um, but there's this wonderful scene later on in the movie where, where Forrest and Jenny, his lifelong love, are walking past her home she grew up in. And it was a home full of abuse and torture. And she rose into a rage and she begins to scream and cry at the house and pick up big rocks and throw it at the house as she collapses on the ground in tears. Forrest gives his famous line, sometimes in life there just doesn't seem to be enough rocks. Why? Because symbols have a way of representing things to us. And we know what it represented in the Jewish mind, by the way. There were two things that the ark of God always came with when it entered into the public presence of, of God's people. The first one was guidance. The ark was there to show you where to go. By the way, when the cloud would lift from over the camp and would leave, that was when the Israelites knew, oh, time for us to go. The cloud is moving. we got to leave. It would turn into a ball of fire at night so you could even see it by night. So God's presence was this symbol of letting you know where to go. And the Ark of the Covenant always led the way. The second thing that the Ark, though, shows was the divine warrior. The Ark of God was this thing that went before the people of Israel as they entered the promised land under Joshua. So that as he went and they encountered Jericho and they march around the city seven times on that last day and miraculously the walls just crumble down around them. And guess what led the way? The Ark of the Covenant. So God was there in the spiritual, the spiritual form to remind them that He was going to fight for you. I'm here to guide you, and I'm here to fight for you. It was guidance and also power that came associated with that. And so the point is, David understands. He knows what the meaning of this public symbol is. And so he lays there in the center of their, their municipality, <laughs> A powerful symbol that began to sort of fashion literally the entire municipal architecture of the Jewish camp centered around the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. And David says, it's coming back. It's coming back into the capital city so that everyone can know exactly what my reign is about. And that brings me to the second point. That's the meaning of the Ark. But notice how strong David's need for this Ark is, secondly. Look, in verses 1 through 5, we get this description of this big pageantry that David is putting on as he brings this ark up. And it's a big parade. You know, he, he, he makes a brand new cart to bring the, uh, uh, the ark on. Nobody's ever put anything on this ark before. 
Uh, he grabs the couple leaders in the youth group, right? Uzzah and Ahio are going to be able to lead the ark up with them along. And everybody's dancing and they're singing and they're celebrating. Probably would have given the grove a run for its money on any, on any on, on given Saturday. Now, again, I know that for a lot of you, you're going to read ahead and realize how horribly wrong this whole little parade is going to go in a few verses. But for now, pause and notice the fact that you can't deny this. David has a passion for this thing. Of all the things he could have chosen as his first official act, he chooses this. You could imagine some uninformed person walking through Jerusalem at this time and being like, whoa, (laughs) what's all the, the, the fervor about? What's the celebration for? And David clearly has got a passion for this thing to say, it is my first priority to have God in the center of this, of of this camp. In other words, he knew that all of the needs that he could possibly have as a ruler, it would all be met here. And of course, he says it over and over again in the Psalms that he writes, doesn't he? We already read one this morning in Psalm 16. In verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You hear the divine warrior theme there? I've got him by my right hand. I've got that warrior with me. He fights on my behalf. His imagination is employed by this idea that God is always walking with him. Isn't that interesting? When that grabs the imagination? Later on in verse 11, he says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now look, we're going to talk about that in the next point as we finish. But I really want you to listen carefully what he's saying. He's saying, all of my longings in life, every desire that I have that comes up out of me, everything that I have found in the sense of wanting in life, meets, completes, and finishes with this idea, God, that you are walking with me. That's what David is saying. What a powerful public statement he's saying. David is saying, look, do not put your trust in me. Only God can bring safety. You will have no security. You will have no stability if it's not about him, if it's not God who's with you. David looks up and says, and it is a holy longing. Do not miss this. Don't let the mistake that we're going to talk about next week overshadow what this is. It is a holy desire for David to long for the presence of God there. He lusts for the presence of God. By the way, this whole story in in, in 2 Samuel 6 is retold in 1 Chronicles 8. And in that story, David actually recites a hymn once the ark finally makes it up into Jerusalem where he says this about the ark. He says, strength and joy are in his place. Strength and joy. The ark was this symbol that you could actually come in and know God. I I really can't drive this home enough. David wanted to know God. He did not just want to know about God. He was longing for, he, he wasn't longing for morality. He wasn't hoping to be a leader in his community. He wasn't just kind of going to church because that's what good religious people do. He wasn't longing to be kind of one of the good guys. David always looking and saying, I want to know you. And the big procession, the parade he's putting on, is his expression of just that. The need for the ark. Thirdly and finally though, but notice that he's found his satisfaction in the ark as well. 
Because we, really we need to park on this. Because I do think for a lot of us, we say, well, I don't know, Les, that feels like kind of an Old Testament thing. They had so many cool, like, manifestations of God's Spirit. I just, I don't really connect with that. Those seem like distant myths. Do we, ha do we even know where the ark is anymore? The answer to that question is no. We're going to talk about why in just a few weeks, by the way. But I do think there's something profound about David letting us know that he wanted the presence of God to be with him at all times. Because he's saying to us this, the presence of God in your life is the need behind every other need you might say you have. Did you catch that? When you experience any need in life, what you are really sensing at the core of your spiritual nature is the need to be in the presence of God. So name it right now. <laughs> what would you say right now is your greatest need in your life? You could say there's nothing more that I need in my life right now than a stable and happy home. You might say, there's nothing more than I need in my life than a job where my boss doesn't seem to live to humiliate me every day. You, you might say that my greatest need in life is, is, to, is some acknowledgement from someone that I'm doing it right. You might say that your greatest need is some kind of healing from an old relational wound that for some reason your mind always drifts to whenever it has nothing else to think about. But here's what David is saying. Regardless of whatever you put into the blank of that question, the blueprint of your soul has to trace back to desires that can only be fulfilled in a walking, talking, interactive, relational walk with God. With God Himself. God is the need behind every other need. Not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him personally and really. This is why St. Augustine will come along and say, God, you have created us for yourselves, and we are restless until we find our rest in you. Look, what's he saying? He's saying, look, no matter what I focus in, no matter what I get fixated on, in the end, what that really is leading me to is to know God. And by the way, this will help you know when your life has gone wrong. <laughs> Because of sin in the human heart, it helps frame where we sort of miss the mark. Because God is saying, your life is to find me. But if you go to the things that are really just meant to be pointers to me and make those ends in themselves, things like jobs and careers or, or, or marital relationships or, or successful, well-balanced children <laughs> or money or whatever, if you make those the ends in themselves, we call them idols in the Bible, you actually not only are not going to get God, but you're even going to corrupt the thing that you're after. Does that make sense? You not only don't get God if you make your career Lord, but you lose your career too because it tyrannizes you rather than blesses you. But the point of this, the knowledge of God is the ultimate goal in life for everyone who calls themselves a Christian. You can say that no matter what, every event in my life, its ultimate meaning is to get me to know God better. That's why that happened. Why are you doing this, oh God? I don't know. But somehow it terminates in knowing Him and being in His presence. By the way, every single thing that you pursue spiritually, whether you're like, you know what? 2020 needs to be a better year for prayer for me. Or you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to journal better this. I'm going to do a spiritual journal for myself. Whatever you engage in, if you engage in those things 
as anything other than means to the presence of God, <laughs> they'll do the opposite of what you want them to do. They'll harden you. They won't soften you. Why we engage in spiritual disciplines is every bit as important as that we engage in them. So look, let me just finish with this question, and I hope you've gotten used to me saying this. When you hear David say stuff like this, do you get a little bit curious? Like, what was it that he knew? <laughs> when he says in Psalm 63 that the love of God is better than life, and that his soul would be satisfied as with the richest of foods, what was he talking about? Really? And I know it's too easy to say, well, you know, Les, he's in the Bible. He was just religious like that. That's why we put him in the Bible. No, he wasn't. He's got the whole Bathsheba thing to prove just the opposite. Look, David knew that the ark represented what it had always represented, God's guidance, and that God would fight for them. And so David ends up looking and seeing through this glass darkly exactly what Jesus would come to be. In the book of Revelation, we find the image that John sees of Jesus. There's a great sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, which is a little odd. But it means the same thing. That sword, we find out, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, our only guidance. But because it's a sword, it means He fights for us. It's the same thing. Jesus is for us the presence of God manifest in the most vivid way. So it's the same thing. This is the reason why the hymn writer can say in Jesus, lover of my soul, all my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Raise the fallen. Cheer the faint. Heal the sick. And lead the blind. Look, as we finish this, one last little thought for you. The character of that building that we're going to move into, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks is going to be established by the expectations that we have as we occupy it. You realize that, don't you? And the truth is, if we go there simply hoping for better parking, which it absolutely will be, or, or more comfortable chairs, which we anticipate them absolutely being, or even a better nursery, which I promise you it will be, if that's our anticipation going to that building, then all we've done is we've built a great big monument to ourselves. And it's wasted. But what if we saw it through David's eyes? What if all of a sudden we put on our lips Psalm 27 when he says something really strange to our ears, when he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and this I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of His temple, I would submit to you that if we make that our expectation into that building, then your children's grandchildren will sit in those same seats and they will worship the God of David and advance Jesus' kingdom one more generation. That would be different. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then would you commit our ways to your hands. Lead us, Father, to this table as we partake of your body and blood that we might experience you in yet further ways. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.